This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Coming up on today's show, the CP rail strike could have a huge, huge impact on the Canadian economy in a number of different sectors. To truly support our allies, we need to have a CD Howe moment and frontline specialist warning about more and more deaths in the opioid epidemic in Alberta. We ended uh, our week last week in a discussion with Bob Lowe of the Canadian Cattlemen's Association talking about uh, the situation with the rail strike and what it would mean for the cattle industry. Nothing good. Uh, to sum up and make it very simplistic, but all kinds of problems. Well, it, it's going to affect all of us. Uh, right now, we're going to find out what the situation is for um, wheat growers in our part of the world. Tom Steve, the general manager of the Alberta Wheat and Barley Commission, joins us now. Tom, uh, thanks so much for your time. Appreciate you joining us today. Yeah, great to be on. Thanks uh, for calling, Jay. Um, So with what we're seeing and with this uh, work stoppage, and uh, I don't know how long it's going to last. I wouldn't imagine that long, but I mean, every minute counts with the way we are. Just just how big of a concern is this for you you when you're taking a look at what it means to wheat and barley in in this part of the world? Yeah, well, I I think I can speak for all crops, but uh, maybe uh, just off the top, um, a comment you know, I, th- I think this might be the most tone-deaf uh, work stoppage in uh, recent labor history in Canada. You know, you've got um, the union, uh, the Teamsters, and uh, CP Rail that seem to be oblivious to the fact that we're trying to come out of uh, the pandemic. Um, we have had uh, grain farmers coming out of a, a 20-year drought. Uh, you mentioned Bob Lowe, and we are sympathetic to the uh, plight of uh, cattle producers that they can't get uh, corn out of the United States. And it, it seems like, um, you know, the two parties are just um, not in tune with the reality of the flow of goods uh, across Canada and internationally. Um, you know, the railways are critical to the ec- economy of uh, Canada, and it just seems like they're arguing over decimal points in uh, salary increases and pensions uh, at a time when we're desperately trying to get out of a a serious economic uh, slump that was caused by the pandemic. Well, you know, and not just the pandemic, Tom, like you say, I mean, the worst drought we've seen in decades in this part of the world, you've got the pandemic, you've got the situation that's taking place in Ukraine right now. I mean, it really is a perfect storm for uh, producers anywhere, but including our part of the world. It is. And uh, so if you're um, you know, a grain farmer in Alberta or Western Canada, for that matter, uh, you're going into uh, the 2022 cropping season, uh, not knowing if there's going to be another drought. Uh, there's been a significant uptick in uh, crop input prices. So that uh, is fertilizer, fuel, uh, crop protection products, which are the, you know, the pesticides yeah. that farmers use to protect their crops. 
and uh, just a lot of uncertainty. So, you know, a lot of uh, grain farmers say, you know, what else can they do to us? Uh, <laughs> you know, um, there, there's a there's a real threat. Uh, so, farmers on uh, CP rail lines, and that's mostly southern Alberta. Um, it's a little bit different. Uh, in central and northern Alberta, where they're served by CN, but in uh, in the deep south, um, you know, from the border up until uh, the midpoint between uh, Calgary and Red Deer, uh, there's going to be serious disruptions in grain movement, and farmers are looking to, you know, um, to sell and uh, and move their last 10 or 15 percent of the crop from 2021, and it was a reduced crop; it was about 40 percent less than normal. Uh, but now they're looking at the prospect of not being able to get it to market, and they're they're not uh, paid until the grain is uh, basically delivered to the pit in the grain elevator, and and uh, grain companies will not um, call for those shipments uh, to be brought into the elevator until they have some certainty that they can get shipping. If they can't get shipping on CP Rail, uh, sorry, too bad, so sad, um, and. Um, they they need that cash flow to finance the 2022 crop. We're, you know, five to six weeks away from seeding, so it's just another uh, uh, blow that sort of adds insult to injury for farmers. But you know, the broader issue is uh, the Canadian economy. You know, um, uh, <clears throat> the movement of uh, products east and west in this country, and the movement. Uh, of products to export markets, whether it's agricultural commodities, uh, you name it. Uh, we need this situation resolved soon. Abs- no question. And I mean, you're talking about export markets, but we're also at a time of year where it's it's getting started and, and getting ready. And, and a lot of the things that, um, like you, you mentioned, fertilizer, you mentioned fuel costs, especially when you're talking about fertilizer and things like that. I mean, this rail strike could affect how the season gets started in Alberta, too. Absolutely. So 75% of the fertilizer um, in Canada moves by rail. So farmers who haven't secured those fertilizer supplies as of yet, some have. Uh, They bought in the fall, um, you know, banking on that was the peak in prices. But many um, will wait until uh, later into the spring. So we always have a logistical crunch with fertilizer deliveries in the spring and uh, in this particular case uh, they may not be able to get the product on farm in a timely fashion. The same with crop protection products. There have been shortages um, uh, due to largely due to the pandemic. You know a lot of logistical challenges and uh, this will just add to that uh, stressor um, on at the farm level. Um. What would you like to see? Do you think our federal government needs to step in and declare this an essential service and remove the right to strike? Um, yes. Um, you know, I, I've been in this industry for, uh, I don't know, 35 or 40 years, and I've seen numerous strikes um, and lockouts. Um, and, you know, I think we've reached the point where, um, you know, we're, if you keep doing what you're doing, you're going to keep getting what you're getting, and that's what's happening in the rail situation. We had a, a CN rail strike in uh, November of 2019 that lasted for eight days. It had a devastating impact on grain movement for the rest of the crop year. And I think the government of Canada or uh, 
the politicians in Canada need to take a serious look at whether um, rail movement should be declared an essential service. I know the unions and management will not like that, uh, but at the end of the day, um, you know, we're and we operate in one of the largest uh, geographies in the world in Canada, and we also service uh, international markets. We're a huge exporter, and uh, we just can't afford to have these um, every few years uh, union and management, whether it's CN or CP Rail, and their unions uh, hold our economy hostage. And I think that's something that needs to be seriously looked at. Yeah, I think um, that's the pressure's definitely there, Tom. Uh, all kinds of different trade groups calling on the federal government to step in and intervene here. Um, and uh, at this point, well, they haven't, saying they would rather that a deal come from the bargaining table. So uh, we will have to wait and we will have to see. I appreciate your time and your insight as to how it's affecting um, wheat growers and other crop producers in our part of the world. Thanks very much, Tom. Shay, always a pleasure. Let's jump back into the CP rail strike situation. And, uh, you know, we've talked a lot about how it's affecting Canada, and no question it is, but it's causing concern on the other side of the border, too. Remember all the fuss uh, when the Windsor border crossing was shut down and how um, we talked to a number of guests who said this is really having a major impact on how we're seen as a trading partner with the United States? Can we be relied upon? Uh, Well, now they're having the exact same conversations. We have a delegation that's actually in the U.S. Capitol today, uh, and uh, these business leaders say right now they're in damage control mode because of the work stoppage at CP Rail. Um, Goldie Hyder, president and CEO of the Business Council of Canada, says the U.S. lawmakers and their counterparts, even White House officials, have been worried for weeks about this possible labor dispute. He says the damage to Canada's reputation could be lasting, coming as it does right on the heels of last month's week-long shutdown of the Ambassador Bridge. So uh, this is not a good look. Where does it go? We're knowing it's having it's a big impact within the borders of our country. It's a mess. Let's chat with Ofer Barron now, who's a professor and academic director at the University of Toronto's Rotman School of Business. Professor, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate you joining us today. Hi, thank you for uh, having me. I think it's pretty tough to sort of overstate just how dire this situation is, right? I mean, this is a massive, massive problem for our country right now. Uh, yes, and uh, it comes on uh, on the heels of uh, previous problems, as you mentioned, and uh, many, so many previous problems that it's hard to count all of them. Well, that's the thing. Yeah, I mean, they just go up. When you see the list of trade industry groups and uh, different, you know, business groups that have come together to ask the federal government to do something, it's approaching 50 different groups now. Um, where, where do you think the biggest impact will be felt the soonest because of what we're going through right now? Well, I think if you go over this top 50 uh, list of groups, the, probably uh, the top ones would be the ones that uh, were mentioned uh, in the short uh, news now with respect to uh, grain and uh, cattle feed, right? Those yeah. are probably probably the largest impact, immediate impact. Yeah, those ones we're talking about, you know, affecting immediately in, in, in really, really bad ways. Um Long term, how does that, I mean, we know supply chains have been an issue for a very, very long time leading up to this. They've already been, you know, stretched to capacity. So how how badly will this affect things long term, do you think? I think there's um, 
One more important um, part here is that uh, the situation in uh, Ukraine and the uh, uh, war between Russia and Ukraine currently also limits uh, their um, export of uh, grains. So the global trade of grains is kind of uh, in, in on shaky ground to begin with. Yeah. Adding this, Canada is also a large grain producer, uh, adding issues with our grain produce production and um, supply chain to that is uh, certainly not something that is uh, blessed uh, by the, given the global situation. We're seeing a lot of pressure from these groups on the federal government to intervene and, and uh, declare rail service essential and remove the right to strike. Um, is that something that you think this situation rises to that level? Is this something that needs government intervention? Um, I, uh, it's a very good question. Luckily, I'm not a politician, so I don't yeah. need to play this game. <laughs> but um, I think uh, the, I, I like the prospect that you put on it in terms of how do we look outside of the country and also given how problematic the supply chain management issues uh, in Canada and globally have been over the last, you know, two and something years due to COVID and other uh, interruptions. So I think the, it, it may be a close call, but I can certainly see this uh, happening. Uh, and you you compared it to the um, bridge blockade. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, you know, one or two days is fine when it becomes two or three months. It's obviously not fine, right? So where where is the, where is the right place of how much... Uh, of a strike should be allowed, and when when it becomes an essential service that may harm the country economy and reputation too much is really for people to think about. But it is certainly a legitimate question in my mind. Yeah, exactly. I mean, we're in a position now when we take a look at CP Rail, just them being off for, I don't know, let's say it's it's a day and a half now. Let's say it extends to three days or a week. Um, how how much of an impact does that have when we talk about removing CP Rail from what they do for the Canadian economy. Yeah, so every day obviously is uh, more and more impact. And one of the things that happens uh, when you uh, close capacity, any, any type of capacity in general, is that you create some backlog of things. And uh, hopefully then when you op- reopen capacity, you can eat through this backlog quickly. Mm-hmm. But as you said, given supply chains are already very stretched, their ability to reduce backlog is uh, much more limited than in um, pre-pandemic days. So every day like this may take, you know, two or three days uh, then to overcome. Uh, And uh, especially uh, the longer it becomes, the worse the the interruption that we see. There's one more point that I think is probably more related to your previous question. Uh, I looked a little bit about kind of the last negotiations uh, between the rail and the union. And I think over the last 20 years, they, they, they had one negotiation which was successful. All of the others have failed. So it's, I don't know, maybe eight, nine, ten negotiations over 20 years. I'm not sure. And I, I think this is the heart of the problem. Basically, the fact that those two parties cannot get to an agreement uh, in a consistent fashion, uh, this is the main issue that if I would be a politician, I would try to pay attention to. Um, when it comes to the Canadian consumer, those of us sort of sitting back watching all of this and not really being involved in any way, ultimately it's going to affect us, right? Whenever something like this happens, the bottom line is prices go up. 
yes, prices goes up. And uh, if, if I mention backlog, it means, uh, you know, uh, shelf that maybe yeah. fill a little bit less quickly than typical. So you may have to wait some, some for some stuff a little bit longer. And certainly a price increase, again, not something that is welcomed by our economy that is probably already facing some uh, inflation, at least given the numbers we've seen over the last few months and the situation in the States, for example. Any idea um, where we might see shortages showing up in some supplies or price increases first? Where would that hit us first? Well, I go back to the grain and beef. I mean, yep. right? If, yeah. if, uh, if, if there's no um, uh, feed for cattle, we, we can see issues with, uh, with uh, beef and uh, shortage of beef. I think the cattle industry had faced it is, its um, uh, tough situations over the last few years with, uh, with COVID, with uh, med cow disease, with uh, um, the, the flooding of the Excel factory, I know, 10 years ago. So it's, it's another hit and another hit and another yeah. hit. And this is something that uh, now with supply chain kind of very tight, I'm not sure how well they can uh, deal with uh, this uh, unnecessary disruption. Yeah, I agree with you. Uh, it's just the absolute worst timing. Uh, Ofer, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate you joining us. Thank you very much. Have a good day. Yeah, you too. That is Ofer Barron, who's a professor and academic director at the University of Toronto's Rotman School of Business. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI. It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. Last week, uh, some very prominent Canadians teamed up to put together an opinion piece on how Canada can best play a role in addressing not just the humanitarian crisis, but the long list of issues that have arisen because of the Russian invasion. Uh, Rona Ambrose, leader of the Conservative Party, Frank McKenna, former Premier of New Brunswick, and Colin Robertson, who is a fellow at the Canadian Global Affairs Institute, collaborating on this piece. And uh, we're delighted that Colin has time to join us today. Colin, thanks so much for your time. I appreciate you joining us. Good to be with you, Shane. Um, let's just go right into this situation here, because... I mean, when we're talking about how Canada can best address the crises, there are so many crises. Which ones are we talking about here? I mean, some of these worse than anything we've seen since World War II, right? Yeah, you've got this extraordinary migration, uh, as you were just reporting, out of, you know, they, they reckon a quarter of the population, remember this is a country of 40 million, so yeah. a quarter of the population is, is moving, and you've got the worst humanitarian sort of crisis in Europe since the Second World War. And that crisis is spreading out because the Ukraine is, like the Canadian West, a breadbasket, as well as providing other vital commodities. And, of course, with Russia, with the sanctions on Russia, that stops. So 
this is going to have ripple effects around the world, particularly in North Africa and the Middle East that relies upon Ukraine for food. And of course, that's a desperate situation anyways. Mm-hmm. And that rebounds into parts of Africa, into Latin America, and it's going to have an effect on Canada. You can already see it when you go to the grocery store and you're paying more for things like bread and beef because the price has gone up. Uh, energy, of course, you go to the gas station, you're paying more for for to fill your tank. Um, you know, we, we in Canada can afford it, but other parts of the world, this puts them in, in, in fairly desperate straits. So what uh, Frank and Rana and I are saying is that Canada can be part of the solution here. We are a breadbasket. We do have the energy, but it means getting our act together. It means, first of all, looking at our infrastructure, getting our goods to market. And, of course, we, we all know about pipelines and things, mm-hmm. but there are other things we can do probably with rail capacity, port capacity, uh, and what we're saying is we're probably moving into, because of the geopolitical changes that are going on, you know, the long-standing confrontation now, competition acknowledged by both sides with China, that Canada can play in this, but we have to get our act together. And that probably means looking to what we did during the Second World War when we put the, con- the economy on a war footing, put C.D. Uh, Howe, who was uh, the minister of everything, as he was called at the time, uh, directed and got stuff done, and that included building grain elevators across the Canada. It included building more rail lines, improving rail lines, port lines, uh, it, and pipelines. So these are things that, that we think Canada should do because there's a desperate need for it around the world, but it means acting today. How does that happen? I mean, when it happened before, is there is there a, a blueprint that we can go to? It doesn't. I, I haven't seen anybody stepping up or even talking about how Canada can fill this 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 role and, and sort of be like you say. I mean, we are uniquely positioned in a number of the areas you mentioned. Uh, how do we get started on that? Well, I think it starts with the uh, premiers and the prime ministers. Remember, the prime minister has been talking to the premiers every couple of weeks through COVID, so they've got a working relationship and. It, it, governments have to lead on this because so many of the challenges we've got relate to the regulatory side of things. It takes us an awfully long time to do anything. You know, building a warship, yeah. for example, takes us a couple of years. Do you know how many ships we built during the Second World War? 600. We were the ones that kept Britain afloat with food and fuel because we were building the ships and then manning the ships in the, the Battle of the North Atlantic. So uh, what we're saying... and. You know, the late Jim Prentice, when he was minister in the Harper government, tried to create a unit within government that would take a look at the regulatory thicket to make things easier. But again, we're not just talking about pipelines. We're talking about uh, getting our grain, getting our our, uh, potash uh, and and minerals to market, and also doing things like refinery. Now, does this mean that we, we put in more investment? Can we do it with the private sector? You know, the Americans are likely to be highly supportive on a number of these things because they need this as well. Uh, do we need uh, an infrastructure bank? I was just reading today about the infrastructure bank that we've set up. Paul Wells did a very good piece saying that you know, these things don't seem to be able to work. So what is it we have to do as a country to make these things work? And so that we see as the first challenge is let's make an inventory of the problems, make mm-hmm. it public, uh, bring the premiers in. Uh, you know, We say create a minister for everything. That's one piece of it. But first of all, figure out what's going wrong and then trying to get uh, the country to work together for a common purpose, which would serve the interests not just of Canadians, but bluntly of democracies around the world and do a lot for bluntly world peace, something that Canadians are always saying they want to contribute more to. 
in which we now have the capacity to do so because we've got the energy and we've got the food. Um, Colin, is that possible? Like, so, like you're saying, you know, the country has to make this step and we have to make this possible. You know, we have to work together. It, does our system even allow for something like this? Well, Shane, if you look at what we did during the Second World War, if you'd looked at this country in 1939, you would have said there's not a chance that this country is going to move from basically being an agricultural farming community to what became a, uh, uh, an industrial nation in the space of six years. So we have illustrated we have the capacity to do this in the past. Uh, we're saying we can do it again, but it is going to require government, business, labor, working together to try with common purpose because the common goal is not just to serve Canadian interests, but bluntly serving the interests of democracies. If we're moving into a new geopolitical uh, confrontation, my friend Roland Paris has a piece in the paper in the Globe today saying, we're into this new challenge. How are we going to deal with it? So we've thought about this and said, we need a grand strategy. We think there is a way out. And if you look to our history, we're certainly capable of doing it. You know, 1867, when people said you can never build a railway across the country, well, Sir Johnny MacDonald did it. And it broke rules and things, but it happened. It came to build pipelines. You know, we broke rules, but it, it happened, and we're all the better for it. So we're saying you don't have to break the rules, but right. look at what the rules are. And if they're not working to our advantage, then let's them and do it on a national basis. Uh, and it will create jobs across the country, but everybody's going to have to give a bit. Uh, but everybody's going to have to pitch in. And you do it because it's in the Canadian interest. Not only will we become more wealthy, but we'll serve our interests globally. Because bluntly, if the rest of the world's going to going down the tubes, Canadians will not be immune. Um, Colin, thank you so much for your time. I think uh, it makes a lot of good sense. I appreciate it. And uh, we'll see if it reaches where it needs to reach and we actually see some action on this front. Yeah, keep in mind, Shane, this is not a political thing. We're, we're not speaking as friendly partisanship. This is going to require all the parties working together, all the premiers working together, and our national parliament. We think they're capable of doing it, but that's their challenge. Right, exactly. Yeah, okay, good stuff. Thanks very much, Colin. Appreciate okay. your time. Thanks, right. Shane. Thanks very much. That is Colin Robertson, who is a fellow at the Canadian Global Affairs Institute, former diplomat. He wrote that piece with uh, Rona Ambrose and Frank McKenna, saying Canada can do some things here can fill some gaps, can play a role. We talked about the opioid epidemic a lot on this show, and sadly, it looks like we're going to keep talking about it because it just continues. In fact, it just keeps getting worse and worse and worse. Last year was the deadliest year so far. Uh, 1,758 Albertans died in 2021. That's about 30% more than just the year before. Think of that, a 30% increase um, in uh, the number of people dying of opioid overdoses in the province of Alberta. It's just an epidemic that continues unabated, and we can't seem to get a handle on it. And, um, you know, the stories continue to come out that things are getting worse, and we struggle to try and find a way to save lives. Joining us now to talk about the situation and what can be done and how bad it is, we have Dr. Monty Gosh, who is an addiction specialist and an assistant professor at the University of Alberta and the University of Calgary. Uh, doctor, thank you so much for your time today. I appreciate you joining us. Thanks for having me here. You know, when we take a look at this situation, just based on the numbers alone, it's obvious, right? I mean, things just continue to get worse, and we haven't even been able to slow things down. 
absolutely. It's it's uh, the highest it's ever been. It's it's more deaths in car accidents and homicides combined. Uh, we have more deaths because of the opioid poisoning crisis, more so than heart attacks. So it's a, it's a huge problem for our province. Um, you know, last week we heard some really scary stories from people in homeless shelters, even rehab facilities, talking about people who are dying within these facilities. I mean, that's these drugs, they're everywhere, right? Indeed, yeah. They're permeated through almost every part of society. We have people who are experiencing homelessness who are poisoning. Uh, we also have people who are living in, in upscale neighborhoods, uh, people who have professional jobs. It's, it's everywhere. Um, the province continuing to focus on rehab beds, and I don't want to be critical of that. I think that's fantastic. It's great. But, you know, as we've covered on the show here before many, many times, Doc, that's just one small part of the puzzle when it comes to treating this epidemic. In fact, you know, the, the numbers tell us that that won't be effective for the majority of people, right? I mean, most of the people who are dealing with opioid addiction, uh, residential treatment and those sorts of things doesn't work. That's not necessarily true. It's a piece of the puzzle, as you had mentioned. So for sure, we need to have that as part of the broader spectrum of options for treating this patient. I think are these patients, one of the things that we need to focus on, of course, is harm reduction. I know that yes. we're, again, um, having increased access to supervised consumption sites, virtual supervised consumption services, um, other harm reduction activities such as naloxone kits and education are key aspects of dealing with this. But the policy that we need to have goes broader than just that. Uh, so, for instance, we really need to focus on more treatment in terms of opiate agonist therapies. Um, so this includes medications such as methadone, uh, buprenorphine, which is also known as suboxone. Mm-hmm. Uh, these two medications are so crucial to maintaining patients uh, into recovery that, uh, that without them, they'll likely relapse and have more risk of overdosing in the future. Um, there's other creative policies that are coming out right now to uh, recovery does include suboxone and methadone treatment. I think that's a huge fundamental shift in the way that we've been managing things. Uh, traditionally, as the article kind of had pointed out, uh, is that uh, recovery um, was very much focused on abstinence. And, and that has definitely shifted now lately. Uh, recovery is more about not being on illicit drugs on the street. Uh, but you can still be on opiate agonist treatment, which is some people call it opiate replacement therapy as well, because you're basically taking away one opioid, the illicit drugs from the streets and putting them onto a different opioid altogether. Um, treatment that was considered as part of harm reduction, but that's moved more into treatment because like, there's a lot of evidence to suggest that this is extremely and incredibly effective in keeping people off the illicit stuff, the stuff that's unpredictable, the stuff that people can overdose off of. Walk us through when we talk about using Suboxone or using methadone. I think a lot of people just, they have preconceived notions about what that means and how it fits into the whole spectrum of recovery. Just walk us through, when you talk about that, what is the plan? I mean, how does that work in terms of trying to help somebody who's dealing with opioid addiction? So what happens with opioid addiction, and this is for any addictions for that matter, is that uh, a certain part of the brain gets activated. It's the war parts of the brain that gets hijacked. Um, So, for instance, we naturally have uh, food and sex usually stimulated, um, and then it becomes sort of uh, an issue about survival. These parts of the brain are, are there to make us survive. So food, if you don't have food, you won't survive. If you don't have sex, the, the species won't keep procreating, of course going. Um, And so that's the part of the brain that these substances take over. Uh, And the way to sort of quell that part of the brain is by keeping the substances going, but in a regulated manner 
that doesn't cause euphoria. And that's exactly what methadone and Suboxone does, is that it sort of takes over this part of the brain that's already been hijacked by the illicit drugs and replaces it. And so you can have a more of a regulated system in place. Uh, you can have, uh, you, don't, you know, you can have control of cravings and withdrawal symptoms, things that often drive people to use substances off the streets. Um, so once you get that taken care of, people can then focus on other aspects of their life and other aspects of wellness, uh, which are crucial to taking care of addiction. I think where recovery especially comes into place is dealing with trauma, because a lot of what happens and the, a lot of the reasons why people are using substances uh, is because of trauma, whether it's physical, sexual, emotional trauma in the past, uh, things that they keep reliving on a regular, regular day-to-day basis. Uh, of course, this isn't everyone, but a good portion of the population does suffer from this. But there's also other things as well, such as mental health concerns that can impact uh, people's recovery uh, or getting off of illicit street stuff. It's their housing and income support that might not be there. Um, so really, it's a comprehensive package that we need to have in place for this clientele to make sure that they're doing well and they continue to live in, in uh, you know, not be using illicit substances off the streets. Exactly. Yeah. And like you say, it's that spectrum. And, and you know, when you talk about getting the, the methadone or the suboxone or whatever the case may be, that's a safe supply, too. And that's part of the issue that we're dealing with. The supply of drugs on the street right now is just so toxic. I mean, it, obviously, it's straight up deadly. Indeed, absolutely. It's it's right now. If you look at the Alberta surveillance data, almost twenty eight percent of people who are overdosing from opioids are overdosing from carfentanil. This is this this is you know this is horse and sorry I should say elephant elephant yeah uh, opioids right. So it's it, it's quite uh, it, it's quite deadly and quite potent, and we definitely need to sort of displace that uh, um, that supply. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, I'm really glad that you, you came on and talked about that and talked about the spectrum and the approach. Uh, Doc, th- thanks so much for your time. I appreciate you joining us. Well, thanks for having me. Appreciate yeah. it. That is Dr. Monty Gosh. And uh, yeah, I appreciate his perspective. And a lot of you on the text line, too, uh, saying the same thing. Uh, this listener says, I love that we're talking about Suboxone now, but I think pain specialists are not consistent with the use of these drugs. I don't know. Uh, I know it's changed a lot when it comes to pain specialists and how we treat pain and those sorts of things. Uh, This listener says, safe supply society needs to stop fighting this war, especially with arguments based on moral grounds. Um, And I think you're right. Um, I think you make a really, really good point in terms of it's politicized just like everything else in our society these days is politicized, and unfortunately it's costing lives. Um, As we've talked about on the show and we've brought on the best... um, experts that we can find, people who do this each and every day. It's not like we're stumbling around in the dark here, trying to come up with a way to treat this, a way to try and get a handle on this. Um, The fact of the matter is we know what can save lives. It's just having the political will to do it, having the guts to stand up and say, okay, I mean, this is what the experts, I mean, we've talked about it. We know what it is. It's a whole spectrum, right? Keep people alive, get them into treatment and support them. That's, it's, it's a spectrum. You can't say we're going to supply more rehab beds. That's great. That's a good thing. Don't get me wrong. Not being critical of the government, but that's just one piece, right? Um, That's just one small aspect of the whole spectrum of handling this opioid epidemic. And it won't work. I'm telling you now it won't work. Um, until you get a broader-based approach where you're dealing with all of the issues that Dr. Gosh outlined for us, right? Keeping the people alive. A rehab bed is no good to somebody who's already died. 
Um, and that's what safe supply is about. That's what harm reduction is about. That's what the opiate uh, agonist treatments are for, I mean, to keep people alive, get their life stabilized. Then they seek recovery and bingo, bango, they come back to being a, a you know, a, a healthy, productive member of society. But it's a process and it's a spectrum and we just want to jump ahead. We, we don't want to do it because stigma, pure and simple. That's all it is. It's, it's, it's not politically acceptable. So we don't do it. And people die. We should be doing better. Thanks for listening today. To hear any of our other interviews, you can find them wherever you find your favorite podcasts. And if you like what you hear, don't forget to rate and review us.